We're going to be studying the final chapter of a short little epistle, meaning a letter at the tail end of the New Testament called 1 John. As a church community, you'll know that we've been studying this book for several weeks now, and then we took a bit of a break for Easter, but we're back in the book of 1 John. We're going to be studying together chapter 5, verses 6 to 21, and the title of today's message is Confident Faith. Now, The issue of confidence comes up a lot in culture. People talk about votes of confidence when they want to get rid of a particular government or government official. People often talk about whether or not they have confidence in the economy or confidence in their retirement plan. There's discussions about whether whether you should be confident in your church or your church leadership. And the reason why we discuss matters of confidence a lot is because we live in a world where people let us down. And so one could argue that there's just reason at times to lack confidence in certain institutions or certain people. But one area where we cannot afford to lack confidence is in our Christian faith, in our trust in Christ and in the work that he has accomplished for us. So that's why I've called this message Confident Faith, and as we study it together today, we're hoping and praying that you'll be blessed. If you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll come to know him as your personal Savior, and you will have the confidence of eternal life when you die. And if you're a believer, may this build your confidence and affirm the confidence that you have in Christ. So as we prepare to study God's Word together again, get your Bibles ready. I'm going to lead us in prayer at this time, and we're going to ask God to do what I can't do, and that is impact people's lives through the work of His Holy Spirit. So let's just pray together. So here we are, Father, nearly at the end of April, and we're thankful for the spring weather. We're thankful for opportunities to fellowship with one another on the telephone, or through text messaging, or through the internet. But Father, we long for the day when we can come back together as a community of faith in our living room, in our shared home, in our church buildings, and be together and see one another and encourage one another and bless each other. But in the meanwhile, Lord, we will wait patiently for you to do the good work in us that you have promised to do. We're asking, Lord, that you would give us patience. We're asking that you would give us perspective. We're asking that you would give us hope. And today, Lord, as we look to your word, we pray that you would bless our hearts and our minds through it. We want to surrender ourselves to it again right now to say we affirm the authority of Scripture. We will choose to respond to what you have written. And as I preach it, Lord, we know that the Word of God being true and accurate uh, needs to be preached with clarity and with urgency. And we know that you will accomplish your purposes through it. So we pray that you would grant me the capacity to preach it with clarity and urgency. And may it be a blessing to my life and to the lives of all who are listening today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's get into the text. Again, this portion of Scripture is helping us to understand how to develop a confident faith. How to develop a confident faith. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 21, 
essentially helps us to understand how to develop confident faith by reminding us of three things. Number one, the substance of faith. We need to make sure that we're putting our faith in the right person. Secondly, we're going to see the benefits of faith. Some of the um, joys, the blessings that God gives us when we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, we're going to go back to a reoccurring theme which comes up time and time again in the book of 1 John, and that is the signs of confident faith. If you truly have put your faith in Jesus, there's going to inevitably and necessarily be transformation that takes place in your life. And so as you assess your life, as you take stock of your actions, your thoughts, your words, you will be able to see certain characteristics in your life if you truly have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these things will serve to build your confidence in Christ. So again, we're going to talk about the substance, the benefits, and the signs of confident faith. Let's start with the first one. Confident faith's substance. What is the substance of confident faith? Well, let's read together First uh, John chapter 5, verses 6 to 12. And here's what God's Word says to us. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive, so this is an illustration now, if we receive the testimony of men, which we do in courts of law, People stand up and swear an oath and testify. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God, in other words, what God says, is greater. For this is the testimony of God. So this is what's greater than any testimony that could be offered in a court of law. The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, what is it? That he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, very categorical it says, does not have life. Now, this passage and the verses that come after it are two of the most debated and one could say complex passages in this five-chapter epistle. And we get the opportunity to look at both of these complex issues this morning, but I hope that we can bring some clarity to it. So let's go back to verse 6 and 7 and try to understand what it is that 
the Apostle John was trying to communicate to his early listeners and that God through his Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us today. So first of all, I will acknowledge that there are several views that have been offered by well-meaning, competent Christians throughout the centuries. We have these three words that come up, water, blood, and spirit, and somehow the writer is tying the water, the blood, and the spirit into this whole notion of God bringing testimony to us, of God pointing us toward that which is true. Now, some people see within this references to the Trinity. The water, the blood, the spirit somehow is some sort of a reference to the Trinity. Others have tried to tie it into the Lord's Supper or what some churches call communion or the Eucharist. Some try to tie it into the crucifixion. You know that when Jesus had a spear stuck in his side, that blood and water came out. How is it that these things testify to the message that God wants to deliver to his church? Others, by the way, sometimes have seen this as an allusion to Jesus' birth. So Jesus is born from water. When a mother obviously gives birth to a child, water comes out and blood often comes out as well. So these are different ideas that have been put forward by Christians throughout the centuries to try to explain what this text is. But what we need to see at the center of all of this is what is the purpose of the water, whatever it refers to, the blood, whatever it refers to, and the spirit. What is the purpose of these three things? And how do they testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ, which really is central to this text and is the foundation or the basis, the substance, if you will, upon which we grow in our confidence? So how do these things testify to the truth of Christ. Well, let me propose that I believe this is in all likelihood uh, a reference to both the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus ministered publicly for approximately three years. And at the beginning of his ministry, we know that he went out into the wilderness and he was baptized in water by his cousin John and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus Christ. And that whole episode in the Gospels is there to help the reader to understand that Jesus' ministry and subsequent work leading up to the cross was initiated by and affirmed by God the Father. Now, fast forward three years. One of the central truths to Christianity is that Jesus shed his blood for the remission of for the forgiveness of our sins. And when he shed his blood, he finally accomplished everything that was necessary in his redemptive plan to offer you and I the assurance of salvation and eternal life. So at the beginning of his ministry, we have water and spirit. At the end of his ministry, we have blood being shed. And it seems best then to understand that God is trying to communicate to his people that we can have confidence in Christ, in his ministry, 
in his redemptive work for us because at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, the Father testified to us through his work and through the work of Jesus Christ that he actually is the means whereby we can inherit eternal life. So in verse 9, again, it speaks of the testimony of God. And there are witnesses to the testimony of God. And those witnesses are his water baptism, which inaugurated his ministry and indicated that he was one sent to us from God. The Holy Spirit descending upon him affirmed him as divinely sent by the Father. And at the end of his ministry, again, his blood was shed, which confirms his role as our Savior. This, I believe, is what the text is trying to communicate to us. Obviously, it would have been readily understood by the first century listener. But regardless, even if you hold to a, an alternative interpretation, we can all agree on this. In this text, we're being reminded that God's testimony to us is true, that we can actually trust God's word and God's promises because of Jesus Christ. Everything centers back upon Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned earlier, if you watch court TV or you've ever been to a trial, you'll know that in nations across the globe, one of the things that is relied upon to either convict or acquit someone who's been accused of a crime is eyewitness testimony. This goes right back to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. In the Ten Commandments, the Bible says, don't bear false witness. Why? This is a reference to people who are bearing witness for or against other people in a court of law. And if you can't trust eyewitness testimony, if you bear false witness, the whole legal system collapses. And so in our country, when we call witnesses, we require that they take an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, because we understand the implications of lying. They're catastrophic. If you lie in a court of law, if you bear false witness, the whole legal system falls apart. So we place a high premium on eyewitness testimony. But at the same time, we know, we know from history that eyewitness testimony is not always accurate, that people's testimonies are sometimes false, that people sometimes perjure themselves in a court of law or say they saw something that they didn't actually see. So we're not saying, ah, we're never going to trust what other people say. We do put a measure of trust in one another. But the text reminds us that human testimony compared to divine testimony pales. God's testimony is greater. What God says he will do, what God says he will accomplish, we can absolutely put our faith and confidence in that. Now, if you look at verse 10, this is more than just a theoretical discussion. Because in verse 10, it makes this message very, very, very personal. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. 
has the testimony in himself. That's kind of weird. How do I have the testimony in myself? It means you have the truth. It means that which God has said about Christ, that which Christ has accomplished for us, has impacted your life personally if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. you got to put your confidence in something, folks. You're either going to put your confidence in luck or you're going to put your confidence in yourself, or you're going to put your confidence in others, or you're going to put your confidence in some God or divine being or collection of divine beings out there, or you can put your faith in the true and living God and in the work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, the testimony that God offered to us through Christ, the affirmation of his ministry at the beginning, the affirmation of his ministry at the end, brings about radical transformation in our lives. It goes on to tell us in verses 11 and 12 that if we say, eh, who cares what God says? I'm not going to listen to God. I'm not going to listen to the word of God. I'm not going to listen to the testimony of God. That's not relevant. If you do that, what does the text say? It leads to death. And you, in fact, are labeled as a liar. Now, we all know that both Christians and non-Christians, both those that are putting their faith in Jesus Christ and those that reject the Lord Jesus Christ, will one day face the reality of physical death. You know, sometimes we joke and we say, What's, what are the statistics like when it comes to human death? Pretty impressive. Why? Because 100% of people ultimately pass away. They die. So all of us, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, because sin entered into the world, this is just a reminder, a little sidebar here, will one day physically die. But the kind of life and death that John is speaking of is not physical life and death. He's talking here about spiritual life and death. If you have received the testimony of God, if you've trusted in the substance of God's offer of salvation, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive the gift and the assurance of eternal life. And that is a greater gift and a greater blessing than anything else the world could possibly offer you. It's a huge blessing. So what is the foundation of faith? Back to the question, what's the foundation of faith? And how confident can we be that our faith is substantive? How confident can we be? Many want to know this. The Bible answers it this way. You can be confident, absolutely confident, if the substance of your faith is in Christ. The Bible is Christocentric. The Old Testament points to the work of Christ. The Gospels testify to the work of Christ. The writings of the Apostles point back to the work of Christ. In our Christian worship, we remember what Christ has accomplished. We worship Christ in the moment. We believe that the Spirit of Christ lives inside of us. It's all about Christ. 
We are a Christocentric, a Christ-centered people. And so we cannot get Christ's person, Christ's promises, or Christ's work wrong. We need to make sure we're biblical. And what God has said, of course, is more confident than the best eyewitness testimony we could ever imagine. What God has said is more, we can put more confidence in that than we can in recorded history written by man. Not that we don't trust history across the board, but every history book is written by a man or woman and they may not get it right or they may leave out certain aspects of what actually happened. But when God points us back to the past or God points us to the future, God never lies. He always tells us the truth and so we can put absolute confidence in him. So this raises a question, a very personal question that each of us need to consider. And the question is, do I have the Son? Do you have the Son? Not S-U-N, S-O-N, the Lord Jesus. Do you have, do you possess the Son? If so, you put your faith in Him, you've trusted in Him, you've previously repented of your sins and denounced that you are your own God or your own Lord or your own Master, and you've recognized that you are His servant, that He is the Creator, that you are the created, if you've acknowledged those things, you have life, the Bible tells us, and if you have life, guess what you have? You have confidence. You have confidence. So think about this. If we have person A and person B, and person A has no confidence of eternal life. And person B has confidence of eternal life because they've accepted the testimony of God. Person A over here, person B over here. Don't you think they're going to react differently to things like bad news? Stressful moments? Anxiety? World crises? Even personal criticism? How they parent their children? How they respond to offenses? How they conduct themselves at work? This is more than a Sunday morning only conversation. Person B has a massive advantage over person A because they know that this world is just a Moment of time wedged between two eternities. And what Christ has accomplished for them in this moment of time guarantees them the assurance of eternal life. So it's not that person B then lives their life with some sort of a naive ignorance, totally unaffected by the circumstances of life. No, they still shiver when it's cold. They still exercise some concern when they lose their job. They go see a physician if their body's not working well. But inside, there's a peace. There's a confidence. There's a hope. 
that transcends the temporal circumstances of this life. Why? Because they ain't trusting in the temporal circumstances of this life. They're trusting in the person, the promises, the plan, and the work of God. So if you want true confidence, you need to make sure that the substance of your faith is Jesus. And by Jesus, I don't mean your church or me as your pastor or your small group as much of a blessing as all those things are, but those things come and go. But what never changes is the eternal message of the gospel. This is the substance of confident faith. And now let's talk about the benefits. When you have that kind of confidence, there's benefits that come from that. So back to the text, verse 13. Check this out. Before I read it, let me just say this. There are some theological systems within Christianity that will teach you, you know, you, you can't ultimately know if you're saved or lost. You can't ultimately know if you're born again or not born again. You sort of have to do your best, put your faith in Jesus and him alone, but you're not really going to know until you get to heaven whether you are a son or daughter of God. Well, that's unbiblical. And the reason why that's unbiblical is because of verses like this. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we gain insight into the intent, the motive of the writer. And here's what the writer says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So this is to the community of faith. What does he say next? That you may know that you have, that's present tense, eternal life. Isn't that a blessing? The Word of God teaches us that God wants us to come to a point in our lives where we know that we have eternal life. God doesn't want to leave us doubting and wondering and guessing or scratching our heads. No, God wants us to come to a place where we can say, oh, I know that I have, present tense, eternal life. This isn't some pipe dream, something that I'm just looking forward to in the future, in the here and now. I have the assurance of eternal life. How can I know? Well, look at verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. So there's a couple things going on here. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we have confidence that we have access to God. This is one of the blessings of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have access to him. The Bible says every true believer is a priest. The high priest is Christ. He ultimately represents us to the Father. But I can speak to God in prayer. I can offer him words of adoration. I can confess my sins to him. I can ask him for things. I can thank him and express my gratitude. And if I ask of God that which is according to his will, the Bible says he hears us. Now, does this mean that 
he's going to answer every one of my prayers as I pray them? No, because I may be asking something that's not in accordance with his will. And by the way, when we talk about the will of God, we need to understand that obviously God's will means that God has a plan and a purpose and a desire to accomplish certain things or lead us in a certain direction. When we talk about God's will, we, we must acknowledge that there is both a concealed will and a revealed will. Meaning that there are certain things that God wills to be true. We don't know about them. God has not revealed to us every single aspect and detail of his eternal plan or purposes to humanity. Frankly, our brains probably wouldn't be big enough to compute all of that anyway. But at the same time, God has revealed massive amounts of his will to us. If you have one of these things, a Bible, you have a massive volume of divinely inspired literature which reveals to you God's will. In this text, I do not think that the writer is teaching us, well, if you pray that God would reveal his concealed will to you and you try to figure it out, that once you find it out, then you can pray the right prayer. No, I think what we're being taught here when the New Testament writer is encouraging us to pray according to God's will is pray according to God's revealed will. Pray according to what you already know to be true. If you're a student of Scripture at all, let me just tell you this. You can spend your entire life studying Scripture and never exhaust your study. You can spend your entire life studying God's revealed will to you, and you'll never get to a point where you're like, well, I'm done. I know everything there is to know. There's nothing more. Okay, Lord, can you give me like another book? I, I kind of mastered this one. No, no. But so often Christians spend their time wondering about God's concealed will. Well, Lord, I need more in order to put faith in you. I mean, who am I supposed to marry? Could you actually send me a name? How long am I going to live? Like, could you, could you tell me my death date so I can plan accordingly? Should I move to this city or that city? Like, I'm just so perplexed. My faith is a wreck because you haven't told me yet. Look, these are all minor compared to the revealed will of God. And here we are called upon to pray according to that which God has revealed. So prayers like this, Lord, you've revealed to me that you want me to be holy. So here's my bold prayer today. Lord, help me to be a holy man. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, deliver me from temptation. I'm feeling tempted right now. Here's a biblical prayer. Lord, deliver me from temptation. Let me just say this. I don't ever remember a time in my life where I was tempted and in the moment boldly prayed that prayer and failed. Isn't that amazing? When I ask God to deliver me from temptation, guess what he does? He delivers me from temptation. When I don't bother asking God to deliver me from temptation, guess what happens? I do a nosedive. The point is, one of the benefits and blessings of putting your faith in Christ is you have a revealed word from God. And now, with Christ as your 
advocate, your intermediary, you have the blessing of praying according to God's will, and God will answer you. And then we have the next verse, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, now whatever is, shall we say, contingent upon it being his will, can't just pray for health, wealth, and happiness if that's not his will. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. This verse has often been abused by people who think, oh, well, this means that I can ask God for whatever I want and God must give it to me. Well, that might not be God's will. Well, how do I know what God's will is? You pray according to his revealed will, not his concealed will. You pray according to God's revealed will. You pray that God would line up your thinking and your attitudes and your speech and your priorities and your responses and your relationships and your expenditures and all of that, all of life. You pray that God would line you up with his revealed word. God wants to bless you in this way. So know this, you don't have to know everything about God's will or everything there is to know about God in order to function successfully as a Christian. You know, let's say you're going to a job interview and, and you show up and you have your, your resume printed out and of course your resume always lists all your pluses, right? Like you don't put on there, you know, I'm a terrible follower, I'm totally incompetent, I got a D in my degree. We tend to put our best on our resumes. And so you sit in front of your interviewer and and if they really want you, of course, they're going to give you a general idea about what the requirements are and what the time requirements are, kind of how you're supposed to do your job. And you're going to ask questions of them and they're going to ask questions of you. And you're, you're, you're trying to get to know each other, right? And at some point, you have enough information about them and they have enough information about you that they agree to hire you and you agree to work for them. But we all know when we start a new job that it probably takes six months, maybe a year, maybe even two years on the job before we really get up to steam and understand the nature of this employee-employer relationship. We don't say, well, you know what, I need about 55 interviews. I need to spend hundreds of hours with you. And they don't say, we need to spend hundreds of hours with you in order to offer this employer-employee relationship. It starts off basic. They're looking at your resume. They've asked a few questions. You've asked them some questions. You've checked out their website, perhaps. And you agree to have a relationship with them as an employee-employer. Well, the same is true of our relationship with God. It's not like day one as a Christian, all of your questions have been answered, everything's been sorted out, you and Jesus are as tight as you could possibly be. No, our relationship with the Lord is a progressive, unfolding relationship. We have a relationship with Him. We learn to pray better, we learn to trust Him more, but it takes time to really get to a point where our relationship has come to kind of a full 
mature kind of relationship. And then in verse 16, here's another point to be made. It says, if anyone sees a brother. So in the scriptures, when Christians are talking to Christians, and they talk about the family or a brother or a sister, we're talking about Christians because we're part of a spiritual family, right? I would say this is one of the themes that I have emphasized almost more than any other in my almost 19 years of tenure as a lead pastor of this church. I've used words like community, family, brothers, sisters, over and over and over again. We even call our meeting space our worship center. Sometimes we call it our worship center. Sometimes we call it our family living room because just like your family has a house, to live in and there's bedrooms and kitchens and bathrooms and there's a lawn and a porch and maybe you got a mortgage and you have utilities to pay. In the same way, the church has a home that it meets in and this is our living room and we come together and we worship the Lord as a spiritual family and we collectively pay our bills and we do ministry and we invite friends, unbelievers into our spiritual home. Why do I use all this language? Because I don't want to pastor just some organization, some institution, some registered charity. That's not the church. The church is the family of God. And I am your spiritual brother, first and foremost. And you are my spiritual brothers and sisters. So here in this text, using this kind of language, I just want to emphasize it, This is a conversation from Christian to Christian. And in this conversation, the writer says to his listeners, if anyone sees his brother, meaning another believer, committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. As I mentioned earlier, this is like, woo, kind of a complex passage of the Bible and raises a lot of questions. And because I love the details of Scripture, I'm pretty confident I could preach for several hours and teach for several hours on all the nuances just of these few verses. But I won't do that to you, but I do want to give us a bit of an understanding here of what I believe the writer is teaching us. So, one of the the overarching call here is for Christians to pray for other Christians who are committing sins that God would give them life. So, we think to ourselves, okay, if you're a Christian, and if you're a Christian, you already have confidence because Christ has died for you and you have life, why would the writer be saying to one Christian, well, you should pray for that Christian over there that God would give them life? Don't they already have life? Well, what we need to understand is that while the word brother refers to other Christians in the church, that there are times, even in our churches, where people are reckoned as brothers, considered to be brothers, 
we assume they're brothers. They've been baptized. They bring their Bibles to church. They're part of our worship. Maybe we've known them for years. And guess what? Over time, it's revealed they're not brothers at all. They're false brothers. We've had this in our own church, and if you're watching from another church, I'm sure this is true of your church too, where you have people that come out and everything about them seems like they're your brother. But over time, just as Judas betrayed Christ and demonstrated that he wasn't a disciple at all, there will be brothers and sisters in our churches that over time we realize, oh my, this this person, they're not a brother or sister at all. So in this text, it calls us to pray for our brothers, committing a sin, not leading to death. So what is the sin then that leads to death? Because the text seems to be implying, maybe more than implying, that you should pray for a certain classification of people that have not committed a certain sin that leads to death. Instead, you... You know, you avoid those that have committed the sin leading to death, but you pray for those that have not committed the sin leading to death. So what's this all about? Well, if we just flip back in our Bibles through the book of 1 John, I think we find our answer to this question. Again, if you look at 1 John, his message is incredibly consistent. And here's some of the statements. I've picked one out of every chapter, and there's more. But if you study this book with us, you'll already know these verses. Here's what it says about people who have either rejected who Jesus is or who have said, oh, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but I'm not going to act like Jesus. They hate one another. They don't bear spiritual fruit. So whether a person rejects the person of Christ or the pattern of which Christ lived by and which we should also live by, that person, here's what the Bible says about him. Let me just let the Bible speak for itself. I'm going to start off in chapter 1. It says about such people, chapter 1, verse 8, truth is not in us. If that's the kind of person you are, you've rejected Christ or you've rejected the morality of Christ, the truth is not in you. In chapter 2, verse 9, Speaking of similar issues, it says that person is still in darkness. In chapter 2, verse 23, it says that person doesn't have the Father. Chapter 3, verse 6, has not seen or known him. Chapter 4, verse 3, is not from God. Chapter 5, verse 10, we already read it. He's a liar. So what we have here is a repeated theme through this epistle. John, the writer, is a believer who's writing to a community of faith composed of believers. But time and time again, he warns these believers, these supposed brothers, that if you reject Christ, or you hate people, and you don't love people the way Christ did, or you don't follow the patterns that Christ established for us, Well, you can say you're a brother all you want. You might have the t-shirt, I'm a brother, but no, you ain't. You ain't a brother. A person cannot simultaneously say, I'm a Christian and hate Christ 
or hate other people. You can't. Now, being moral and good is not the means of salvation, but it's one of the necessary signs of salvation. This is a theme that is picked up time and time and time again in 1 John. And I think it's a super important theme because even in many Christian churches today, Bible-believing churches today, people have this misguided, unbiblical notion, oh, if I just believe the right thing, I'm a Christian. I'm one of the brothers. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that. The Bible essentially indicates to us that correct belief will necessarily and inevitably, I'm going to use that language again, necessarily and inevitably lead to Christ-like conduct. So what is the sin that leads to death? Any other sin can be forgiven, but one sin can't be forgiven. I reject Jesus Christ and or I reject the pattern of living that Jesus Christ has established for me. I'm not interested. God says you're not a believer. Now, when this text delivers these words to us, it delivers us these words with an application in mind, with action steps in mind. And the action steps here are we are called to pray for one another. We're called to pray for one another. Including and especially those among our ranks that might be sinning. And there's many ways Christians can sin. They can be gossips and slanderers. They can be bitter. They can, be, they can commit uh, financial fraud. They can commit sexual sins. There's many ways that believers can fall into sin. And God's word to us is we should pray for each other. That that person would come back into right standing with God. And all of those sins are forgiven and forgivable. But obviously, it goes without exception that if the basis of faith itself, rejection of Christ and his ways, is thrown aside, there's no plan B for you to be made right with God. So let me put it to you this way. It's obvious to us that Christians can commit a wide variety of sins. Sins of the mind, sins of the heart, sins of the hands, sins of commission. We say things you do you shouldn't do. Sins of omission, things you should do that you don't do. Christians can commit all kinds of sins. But those sins cannot be forgiven if you have rejected the source of salvation, which is Christ, Or, your salvation is not real. You can say, I'm a brother all you want. I'm a brother, I'm a brother, I'm a brother. But you're not a brother if the example of Christ is thrown aside. Again, there's a difference between hating someone and then feeling convicted about that and loving them. That's a one-off. But if you're a hater, you just hate people in general. It's, it's one thing to have a, a lustful thought, to commit a sexual sin. But if that's who you are, that's what you do, that's part of your identity, and you're not repentant, and you're quite satisfied, you're not a believer. So this is a call to essentially match up our 
our talk and our walk to make sure they align what we're saying we believe in and how we're actually living. There's continuity. There needs to be continuity there, not discontinuity. Now, this leads us back to a discussion about the signs of salvation. So final category here is confident faith's signs. Verse 18 states, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Now, the word, the phraseology keep on here in context means habitual unrepentant sin. Again, not one-offs, not the occasional slip up, because otherwise, why would we previously be praying for one another that that wouldn't happen? But if a person continues in sin, it's like, well, I'm sinning and I don't care. And every once in a while, you meet people like that, sadly. Even among God's people that are like, yeah, I do this or I say that. It's just the way I am. And you're like, eh. Minimally, your assurance of salvation is in the gutter, buddy. It's in the gutter. Because that, that's not how transformed people think or act or feel. That's just not, that's not a sign of true faith. But we know that everyone who has been born of God, the Bible says, does not keep on sinning, but he has been born of God. He who has been born of God, rather, that is God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So, if you've been born of God, God will protect you. Does that mean he's going to protect you like an overly protective parent who never allows you to be exposed to any temptation or trial? No. But ultimately and finally, at the end of the day, you can have confidence that he will protect you. I can tell you this. I've been walking with Christ for like over 40 years. I came to Christ in 1979. And I've done and said some pretty stupid things. But whenever I am in the Word of God, listening to the Spirit of God, or opening myself up to being confronted by the people of God, there's always conviction. There's always conviction. If, if sin is revealed to him, I'm not like, ah, I couldn't care less. There's always conviction. Now, in and of myself, if I didn't have the presence of God in my life, eventually I would do an irreversible nosedive into sin. So I know, even in 40 years of walking with Christ, that's a, that's a long time. I know that the reason why I'm where I'm at today in my sanctification, my Christ-likeness, is because this is true. God has kept me. He has protected me. And the evil one, while he accuses me, while he seeks to tempt me, while he seeks to throw doubt my way, while he tries to take my joy, ultimately the evil one can't touch this guy, not because I'm tough or willful, but because God has granted me the blessing of his presence and his protection over my life. So please assess yourself in this area, by the way, and ask yourself, or again, we're not aiming for perfectionism here, not this side of heaven, but is it possible that you have ongoing, unconfessed, habitual, couldn't care less about it kind of sin in your life that needs to be dealt with? And if it's not dealt with, you have reason to question 
the authenticity of your faith. You have reason to have reduced confidence. But through obedience and through the empowering work of the Spirit of God, your confidence goes up, and that is, that's a gift like nothing else. Verse 19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Huge contrast here. We know we can have confidence the rest of the world is subject to the power of the evil one, that is Satan and his minions. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We see things differently. You know, sometimes you read the news, you're like, what in the world are people thinking? How could they possibly justify that action or that action? You're talking to an unbelieving friend. You, you don't want to say it, but you're like, how could you be so, so stupid? How can you be so ignorant? How can that not be obviously wrong to you? What in the world are you thinking? It's because of this. There's spiritual blindness. And whether it's politics or education or sociology or psychology or economics or pick your field. Nothing is spiritually neutral. Medicine's not spiritually neutral. It has a moral basis to it. Economics is not spiritually neutral. It has a moral basis to it. Science is not spiritually neutral. It has a moral basis to it. Everything has a spiritual dimension. And any one of those disciplines or areas of human interest can be corrupted if it's under the power of the evil one. But you've been given understanding, and this is not just understanding of God's word. Of course, this is the basis. But when you understand God's word, you understand the creator, the nature of the creator, the the creature, the nature of a creature, what it means to live as a creature. This informs your view of economics. It informs your view of biology, the value of life. It affects your view of politics. Sometimes, unfortunately, we separate these things out. As if, you know, this is just all like spiritually neutral, secular stuff, and then there's the Christian stuff over here. No, you're, you're, the blessing of God's presence in your life informs your understanding of all things so that we may know him who is true, ultimately so that we would know God. And we, are, and we, we who are in him is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is a true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idols are replacements for God. Very few people fasting little things out of stone or wood these days and worshiping them. But there's many idols, idols of the heart, places we put our trust and confidence that become the source of our trust and confidence. And we're called to put our faith in God. And he's given us understanding. He's given us understanding of his word and his word has a thing or two to say about all of these categories I've mentioned earlier. It has a thing or two to say about sociology, human relationships. It has a thing or two to say about finances, economics. It has a thing or two to say about politics, how people should be governed. It has a thing or two to say about all of this. It has a thing or two to say about the origins of human life and the world itself. It has a thing or two or a million, to say about all of these things. And your intellect is heightened, and your insight is increased when you spend time in this book and you have a relationship with God. This is a gift that he gives to us. So we can know that we are Christians based on Christ's work, 
and message to us. We get understanding from him. Ignorance is reduced. Confusion is reduced. And we get perspective. So as we conclude, let me just leave you with these three questions. Do you know what the substance of your faith is? Do you know that? And do you subsequently enjoy the benefits, access to God through prayer, confidence, because you've put your faith in the right one? And do you display the signs as you assess your life? Are there unequivocal signs of true and authentic faith? If you have these things, these are blessings like none other, and they will increase your confidence and your hope. Let's lean into God's word. And let's embrace the truths that he has for us. They are a huge blessing to us when we do.